And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Winning lottery numbers We've coming got up. Hey, uh, over here. Hey, we got the K's over here. Category 5, what you going to do? All right, welcome back to another installment of the Wide Right Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It's Thursday, February 2nd, around 4 p.m. It's been a while since we did a podcast. Uh, last one was actually January 17th, uh, right after Frank Ponce left to be Appalachian State's quarterbacks coach. I had our recruiting insider, Andrew Ferrelli, on. We previewed the Battle Miami tournament. Cool event to attend. I got to see a bunch of uh, 2024 and 2025 kids uh, from Team Raw, Florida Fire, uh, South Florida Express, uh, guys that Miami's going to be on here in this next cycle. I've been busy, a lot of stories written. I did a five-star series where I interviewed Andrew Ivins uh, from 247 Sports. He's now actually their, uh, basically in charge of their recruiting rankings. He's their their national recruiting uh, analyst. Um, Ivins. Yes, he's, he's moved up. Uh, I did a state mailbag series where I answered questions about Miami, Florida, Florida State, FSU, UCF. I told you guys I'm going to be dipping my fingers into new things. Uh, so I, I did that. Grace whoa, Rader. whoa, listen, let's <laughs> let's pull back a little bit on the phraseology here, bro. The kids may be listening. Grace, Grace Raider and I did a recruiting confidential for the ACC. Uh, ACC schedules came out, so we know now who the Hurricanes are playing in what order uh, in 2023. And today I came out uh, with my top 50 player list for the Miami Hurricanes. But of course, we're going to start the show about offensive coordinator. I know I haven't uh, talked to you guys in a while. Carlos Ledo, as you know, is with me today uh, doing this podcast, this episode. Um, Miami, as we told you many times and hinted at many times, was going to make a change at the offensive coordinator position with Josh Gaddis. It just took Mario Cristobal a long time. My understanding of the whole situation, uh, you know, they're hoping uh, Gaddis would end up finding another job. I think he was looking among the NFL ranks. Uh, I don't think he hit any home runs there, so we'll see what ends up with, with him. But ultimately, Mario is looking for a new offensive coordinator, and uh, a few reports uh, have, have been coming out along the process. Some people thought uh, Scott Frost, former Nebraska UCF coach, he might be a candidate. Other people mentioned Dan Mullen, former Gators coach. Kelvin Harris yesterday went on Twitter and said it was going to be Tom Brady, who just <laughs> retired from the NFL. Uh, I, I don't think any of those names were serious. I think the ones that are serious are the ones that you're starting to see come out today. Football Scoop reporting former Cowboys quarterbacks coach Doug Nussmeyer um, who coached with Mario at Alabama uh, in 2013. He was in charge of the running game. Mario was, and Nussmeyer was the QB coach. The interesting twist to this whole story with Nussmeyer, we're going to talk to Carlos in a minute and get his thoughts on all of this, um, but the interesting thing with Nussmeyer is he has a son named Garrett, who's a four-star quarterback at LSU. He's the backup. He's played quite a bit in the two years that he's been there. As you know, Miami uh, lost Jake Garcia to the transfer portal and left to Missouri. Uh, they've got three scholarship quarterbacks, might be intriguing for Garrett Nussmeyer to follow his dad to South Florida. I know this. I know uh, the older Nussmeyer uh, interviewed with the Ravens today, according to reports. 
I think he's looking at the NFL first, but I think that might be a, a somebody that we have to, you know, at least know his name uh, in this process. Another interesting name, and Kelvin Harris actually mentioned this to me today when he was being serious and not joking about Tom Brady, was T. Martin, uh, who is the Ravens wide receivers coach. Uh, I think uh, T, you know, he called plays at Tennessee. He was the assistant head coach there for a while. Um, his son, uh, Caden, plays baseball at the University of Miami. He's a true freshman. I know people were thinking maybe he plays quarterback at Miami one day. I think it makes sense that T might want to leave the Ravens, who, by the way, have to find a new offensive coordinator, which is why Doug Nussmeyer was there interviewing. Um, I think T might be interested in in, in coming to uh, be around his son more often, who will be on Miami's campus playing baseball. So those two guys, I think, uh, in terms of new names that have sort of emerged, I think make some sense. They've got NFL experience, got plenty of college experience. They've got play calling experience. All of those reasons, they're good names. Uh, some of the old ones that we've heard, James Coley, uh, Jason Candle, uh, the, the Toledo coach, uh, Marcus Arroyo, who was with Mario at Oregon, Joe Moorhead, who was with him at Oregon. Those are all names that I think are important to know. But uh, I want to get your thoughts, Carlos, on what I've just spit out of my mouth because I was talking for a long time. Well, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you've, you've dipped your fingers in things and you've spit things out of your mouth that you've placed in there today. So we're off to a good start. Um, I think Nussmeyer is an interesting name. He was the uh, not just a quarterback's coach at Alabama, but I believe he was the offensive coordinator there in 12 and 13. Let me double check my information. And that is correct. He was the, inform- he was the OC in 12 and 13. In 2012, Alabama averaged 38.7 points. That was 12th in the nation. And in 13, they averaged 38.2, which was 17th in the nation. Uh, after that, he took over at Michigan as the OC, then Florida, and then ended up in the NFL. And I think Doug Nussmeyer is a respected coach. He's he's a really good coach. Um, obviously, Nick Saban hired him to be the OC and the quarterbacks coach. To to me, the question is, does he want to leave the NFL, right? And I think right. most of these guys, once they get to the league, it's it's difficult to bring them back in unless it's a situation where they just either had a bad experience or they're elevating to a different position that they might not have in terms of an opportunity in the NFL. So if Doug Nussmeyer is getting an NFL offensive coordinator position and they offer from Miami to be the offensive coordinator, the NFL is going to win all day. I don't think that's even uh, a, a competition right there. Hopefully, you know, it, it plays out well. He he maybe if he does line in Miami, we do bring over his son, which would be great to add another quarterback to the roster just to see uh, the competition to see what ends up shaking out there. I think more likely would probably be somebody like T. Martin. Uh, and, and I think it would be interesting to see T. Martin come over and and be the OC here, and then maybe partner with someone else as a co-OC. One of my uh, my faithful followers, Dick Grayson, mentioned that as a, as a possibility, having maybe Coley and T. Martin share the offense coordinator duties, one being the quarterback coach, one being the receivers coach, and being co-OCs. I think that'd be great because because I think that would help in terms of opening up the offensive scheme, being a little bit more creative, maybe dare I say, check Coley a little bit in terms of the play calling in the system, in terms of the way he implements it, but also add the recruiting of Coley and T. Martin together, which I think they're both very good recruiters. And of course, Coley's respected as one of the best recruiters in the country. Um, to me, it's I don't know how likely any of these candidates are, because as you know, Mario keeps all this stuff close to the vest. I really don't think Jason Candle is going to leave uh, Toledo at this point. They just won a MAC championship. They're going to have another good team coming back. You know, he's got some job security there. They extended his contract. He didn't like how things went down last year in terms of his name and getting out on the press before he made a decision. He seems like a very private guy. So I don't think he's going to want to go down that road again. But that's just me speculating. I think uh, Marcus Arroyo is another guy that I think could be an interesting name and could also pair with James Coley as a co-offensive coordinator. I think if you give those guys 
co-OC titles. One takes receivers again and one takes quarterback. I think that'd be a good mesh as well with the recruiting in terms of the scheme that Mario wants to run as well. Um, you know, I, I think Tommy Reese was the guy that Mario was really enamored with last year and things just didn't work out and he ended up with Josh Gaddis. It seemed like Tommy Reese was his main guy before he hired Gaddis and Tommy Reese is being rumored to, to be going to Alabama today. So who knows? Who knows how this shakes out? I think at the end of the day, I don't think in terms of uh, whoever gets hired, you're going to see a dramatic change schematically. You're not going to see a high-level, up-tempo, old-school West Virginia with Rich Rodriguez-type offense. I don't think you're going to see a super-spread offense where it's five and four wide, air raid style, or even run and shoot style. I think you'll see more of the stuff that you saw with Mario at Oregon under Joe Moorhead and with Marcus Arroyo because that's how he likes to play. And they may play with a little bit more pace. They may add some wrinkles to stuff. But essentially, that's going to be the system. Well, look, I think the reason why Nussmeyer and T. Martin are interesting is because they're sons. Like, if if you're going to pull a guy from the NFL ranks to come back to college, like you mentioned, they're they're going to need some real incentive. And I think being around their children is probably the main reason why they would do it. Um, I I don't think for any other reason than that. I think, you know, the one thing I think our, our listeners and people need to understand is, this isn't a very sexy job, right? Like you just hired the Broyles award winner and he just came here and had a really bad year and, and, and is gone after one year. Like yeah, that's flamed that's, out in 15 minutes, right? Like the offense, uh, I mean, against FBS opponents average fewer than 20 points a game. Um, the guy who was here before Rhett Lashley, he averaged 34 points a game. Both seasons. He was on as coordinators as my uh, messages are, are going bananas here. I got to see what, what, what I'm being messaged, but, Oh, but essentially like, I, I just think, you know, one thing I, I would take away is I hope whoever Mario hires as coordinator, and I made this point on the Big O show earlier this week, it's got to be a guy who runs a more simplified offense uh, for the players than it is for than it is just, you know, a, a guy who's going to have a complicated, hey, this is going to take a while for us to get type of offense. And why do I say that? Well, because I spoke to some of the players, Carlos. I spoke to some of them, asking them, guys who played in both Rhett Lashley's system and played for uh, our boy here uh, last season. And, you know, I got some interesting responses. I, I, you know, one of them that I actually used in my, in my story today that came out ranking the top 50 players. And I'll read the quote to you. But essentially what it says is this. He said, quote, Lashley's playbook was simpler and allowed players to play faster. Um, I just don't think Coach Gaddis's playbook was set up to be successful in one year. It needs a specific skill type in the players. I think it needed a couple years for everybody to fully understand it because if everybody doesn't fully understand their assignment, it's not going to work. I mean, I I think there is some honesty in that. And and, and here's what I'll say. College kids, you know, we've kind of taken for granted, right? Like, it does take time to learn things. It does take time to pick things up. And I think in today's game, because there's so many coordinator changes year to year to year, nobody ever really gets settled. And I, and we've discussed this on here, uh, Carlos. I, I mean, it's pretty evident in the results. Like Lashley's offense scored points. They played fast. They scored points, um, and it was simple. It wasn't too much for these guys to know. Right. Danny Enos comes in here that one year. Same thing. Crappy year. Big thick playbook. Uh, Josh Gaddis comes in here. Pretty big thick playbook. Apparently, doesn't work. So I think the lesson to be learned here is if you want quick results at Miami. Then you then you probably got to hire somebody who runs a simple playbook. If you want a guy who you're going to invest in and put time into, then maybe you can go with a little bit of a thicker. Right, program. and and I think based on what Mario's done and what how he's building the program, he it's not about quick results. 
because you could have kept Rhett Lashley and still had a horrendous run game and not be able to adjust in-game because your playbook is very limited in terms of how you do that. Um, and, and that's why some of those simplified playbooks don't work unless your your bellies are better than their Joes. And at that point, everything goes out the window. You can do whatever you want. Um, I think what ends up happening is you could run something what you would call a, a more, not say complex, but a deeper playbook, but teach it in a way that the players understand and simplify things, simplify terminology, simplify assignments. I think th- that's different. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's like um, now with the, the the common core math, right? How they're teaching math to kids now where it takes 47 steps to get to two times two equals four. <laughs> right. um, yeah, so that's what Gaddis's playbook was probably like. You've got all these built-in things and all these built-in adjustments and all these different terminologies that you can use within the scheme that overcomplicates things. Why don't we just get to two times two is four? You're still running the same thing, right? You're still trying to solve the same problem, but there's an easier way or a more simplified way to get to that. And I think you could run the same structure in terms of the offense, 11, 12 personnel, one tight end, two backs, one tight end, one back, uh, two, three wide, and still run power and gap schemes and things that Mario likes to run, but in a more simplified fashion. And it's really more about how you teach the scheme than how you the scheme you're actually running. You can run a complicated scheme, but if you break it down to the point where it's so simple, the players get it, they understand it, and it becomes instinctual because everything builds on the last concept and it's just one continuous sort of train of thought where they really feel like, okay, this is simple. I know what I have to do in every instance. It's not that complicated. Then you can do it. If you don't, if you sort of NFL it where it's a long call system and there's a lot of things going on with route adjustments and blocking adjustments, then it overcomplicates things and players have to think too much. Um, and that also hurts the pace. So if you're trying to call something and be a little bit more up-tempo and your your call is like 15 words long, that's an issue. That's why all these teams that run up-tempo usually have one-word calls or two-word calls for their play sets and they get in and out quickly. Um, so it's really about also the relationship you have with your players, right? And I think that's another major issue. And, and I discussed this stuff on my last podcast for the three of you that listened to it. Um, you heard me say it. So nobody else has, so I'm going to repeat it again. I think what I said the same thing about the com- the complexity of the offense and that Gaddis didn't teach it well, and I think part of that is he didn't have a good relationship with his players. He didn't take the time to get to know his guys. And when you get to know your guys, you get to know what they're best at and what their learning type is, right? How are they? Are they audio learners? Are they visual learners? How do I teach them certain things that they get it quicker, quicker right? If, if I'm teaching you something and you're the type of person that needs it written down on a board or reads you need to handwrite it and I need to give you the time to digest it, but I'm just telling it to you and I'm not letting you take notes, then that's a problem because you're not going to figure it out. And that's just an example. I'm not saying that's what happened, but once you get to know people, you know their learning style, you know the way they like to operate. And if you maximize that, then you can be more efficient in the way you teach things because you're not going to be throwing darts against a wall, having them figure out, all right, this works, that doesn't work. So I think that's also part of it. I think you have to simplify the scheme, but also you have to have enough in your scheme to have answers for what the defense is giving you and I don't think Lashley's offense had that. No, I think in the perfect world, look, you you, you could run a complicated offense and, and fool your opponents every single time. I think what these guys were trying to express to me simply was, look, if not enough guys understand what it is that you're asking us to do, then you shouldn't run those plays, right? Because if you have one screw up here or one screw up there, it can blow up the entire play. And, you know, Miami's going to play a lot of freshmen in the next couple of years. They're going to play a lot of young guys. Uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, Francis Maui Goa. You're going to have Samson Okunlola, uh on offense. You're going to have Robbie uh, Washington, uh, Nathaniel Joseph. You're going to have all these true freshmen, I think, playing quite a bit. Uh, you know, Mark Fletcher in the backfield. They're smart kids. 
But I think, you know, one thing you can do as a head coach and one thing you can certainly do as an offensive coordinator is scale back and scale up, right? Like year to year, you can add more and more. Um, I think this year one, you know, whoever this new coordinator is, if he wants to be here long term, or if he really wants to make a serious impact, I think, you know, look, yes, you have Tyler Van Dyke at quarterback and, and who knows who else comes in here after the spring. But you got a bunch of receivers that still really haven't played a lot. OK, you, you have a tight end. Will Mallory's gone. You're going to be playing Elijah Roya, who doesn't have a ton of snaps under his belt. You have Jaleel Skinner, who's going into a second year. Um, you don't have a bunch of guys who I think get it right. Like they, they need to learn it. Uh, right. So so my opinion is whoever comes in, maybe you don't put that much on the table in the in year one. But going into year two, when guys are smarter and they've learned it and they have a better, then you add a little more to it. Well, you've got to lay in offensive foundations, like what you're saying. You've got to create building blocks for the offense to build off of. And it's got to be intuitive, right? It's got to be something where the players can, when you start adding those new blocks, okay, I see the connection to what we've done in the past, what we've already laid the groundwork of, and I can see how this flows through to the next level. Man, I'm going to give you an example. Look, when I was at Miami High my freshman and sophomore year, right? We ran a pro-style offense in high school that had a ton of formations, and it was a pro-style stuff where you were running counter, you were running power, you were running draw, zone runs, you were running all types of route concepts in the passing game, and let's just say not all of us were the sharpest guys in the shed. We were from Miami High, bro. We had a bunch of guys that were from the hood. We were from the, I was from the, 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 the little Havana hood. The, the starting quarterback from Miami High, Wilkie Perez, did amazing there when I was there, and he knew the offense in and out. The next quarterback, Vic Penn, knew the offense in and out. Backup quarterbacks knew the offense in and out. Frank Ponce played under that offense. James Coley played in that offense. And it was the way it was structured by Ralph Arza, who brought the offense over, was very simple in terms of how you learn it. It was intuitive. And you were able to pick it up because although some of those concepts could end up being complex, if you taught it a different way, but the way it was structured and packaged and taught to you, you were able to pick up on it and easily execute it and build off of it. And I think that's the way it needs to be. You can simplify, but it needs to, and, but you also need to have a certain amount in there that you could use to execute what you need to execute on the field so long as it's intuitive and you're not just throwing names and numbers out there that drive people crazy. Because I see some of these, I save NFL call sheets on, on Twitter sometimes because I like reading through that stuff because I'm, I'm an idiot, I'm a nerd, and I get into this kind of stuff. And it is overly complex for no reason. And the amount of route adjustments built into these concepts gets crazy. And I think if you do that, that's way too much. But if you ever you're able to simplify that and have some adjustments off things, at the end of the day, you got to let these guys play. It's I would prefer as a coach to have less adjustments into my schemes and let the players be players and play freely and let a man go make a play. And I think at the end of the day, that's what I have to do. Create a system that has answers for the defense. There's this good scheme where you could do different things and be versatile. But at the same time, doesn't confuse players, doesn't slow them down, and allows them to go out and make plays. Yeah, I, I agree with all of those things. And I think in the end, you know, I think hopefully if Mario learned anything from year one, it's that, you know, <laughs> scoring 20 points a game isn't enough. And whatever adjustments you need to make, whether it's running the ball more, whether it's throwing the ball more, whether it's giving Tyler Van Dyke more opportunities to throw the rock, whatever it is they make the right adjustments and they don't just keep running their head into a, a pile or, 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 you know, kicking and punting every other down because they, they can't move the football. They've got to change. Uh, and, and really, you know, if you look at the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter to me how many games they win this coming season, Carlos, to me, they got to show a pulse on offense and show recruits, you know, guys at the wide receiver position, guys that are very important in this uh, cycle, um, you know, like uh, Jermaine Smith and, uh, and, uh, Jojo Trader, 
um, that, hey, we, we have a competent offense. You can come here and be a playmaker um, because you've had some really good receivers and really good players leave South Florida in the last 15 to 20 years because Miami's offense hasn't exactly been very sexy. And I think you got to show a little bit of sexiness with this offense if you're going to make a change and start to change the momentum around here. Because I think he's doing a hell of a job recruiting offensive linemen and defensive linemen. I think he's doing pretty good recruiting linebackers. I like some of the linebackers they brought in. But you look at the skill positions, receiver, quarterback, uh, those are areas you've got to hit on. Yep, absolutely. And look, I'll give you an example of one of these call sheets that I pulled up because I'm a nerd. And uh, I want to give you the, the, the feel, the complexity. So here's one. This is whose offense? This is a Carolina Panthers, or this is actually 49ers. All right. F right zip, straight right wing, you left. That's the formation. Mustang, use you sail, Z choose, B line. That's one call. And then you wonder why Mike McDaniel ended up getting a, a delay a game at the end of one of these games. One <laughs> of the, I'll give you a, a concept at Miami High. We can go, and I can't believe I remember this after almost 30 years. Um, right. Texas, right 60 Texas. That was a pass call at Miami High. And basically what that is, is right is a formation. You've got an eye backfield tied into the right side. That's the strength of the formation. 60 is a protection up front, which is a fan protection by the offensive line. And Texas is a route where you basically got a post in route with a drag underneath and a back flat. Okay. Look at all that into one call system and how, how efficient that call is. Right. Well, and, and that's important, you know, because, uh, Yes, it's on the players to learn the plays. I get it. I know some of you are listening. They say, screw that. You're in college. You want to make the NFL. You got to learn this. You're going to go to the NFL. You got to learn this. Sure. But all of you are rooting for Miami to win games and not go five and seven and not average 20 points a game. You, you should probably make the system a little easier to comprehend. That's yeah, all absolutely. I'm That's all no, I'm saying. We're saying the same thing. You're yeah. just saying it one way. And I'm saying it another. Yeah. Um, you say tomato. I say fruit, fruit salad. <laughs> So Miami's recruiting class uh, finished seventh after losing Cormani McLean. He ends up flipping and signing with uh, Colorado. Uh, Jaden Rashada. The From now on, he needs to be he who shall not be named. I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> Jaden Rashada, the quarterback who was a part of Miami's class and flipped to Florida, leaves Florida, commits to Arizona State, his third school. Um, I'm actually a part of a story on that. Um, what Did he get an NIL deal from Arizona State? Did it end up being like a... I, uh, a no, a, I, a gift basket of Hawaiian Tropic and like uh, <laughs> a, a co-ed's magazine or calendar or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, coupon for fifty wings to the to the Hooters nearby. Um, yeah, the NIL was not nearly the same. Um, I, it, it it's funny. Let's. Th I guess we can get into this. This is going to be the third topic I get into, but I'll move it up to number two. Uh, you know, the whole thing with Rashad is really really interesting. Um, you know, as far as Miami's concerned, and whether or not the nine point five million dollar offer was real. Uh, Based on a lot of conversations that I've had, I I, I don't think it ever got to that. Uh, I know on three reported it was there was a nine point five million dollar deal. Uh, I, I from my understanding it was a high school only deal uh, for Rashada. What 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 he had signed at the time because you can sign NIL deals while you're in California. Um, you know he got a he got a signing bonus or he got paid you know what uh, a, a substantial amount, but it wasn't in the millions. Uh, it was much less than that and. Uh, he was going to eventually sign a deal with Miami, I think, after he got into college, which is the way I think uh, the majority of the NIL systems work because it's not supposed to be inducement, right? You can't sign a college right. deal. Uh, so whatever the case was, the Gators essentially uh, bit the bullet on this one. <laughs> they really believed that Miami was going to pay $9.5 million and, and, and raise the stakes to, to 13. And 
So uh, they got themselves in trouble, and 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 uh, this is what happens with NIL. But I will say this about Miami, and and I did speak to John Ruiz this past week because I want I wanted to find out about the stadium. Uh, I know he's going to unveil some new plans uh, at the uh, spring football game, April 14th. That's a Friday night at DRV Pink Stadium where uh, where the inner Miami team plays. Um, you know, they're, they're coming along with some plans here. I think uh, obviously the plan is to stick at Tropical Park. Um, you know, I know Miami's under the Hurricanes are under lease through 2032, but I think that, you know, he's, he's moving forward with this. And, and we'll see if uh, if at some point it becomes uh, much more tangible. There's a lot of more, a lot more steps to go. But as far as unveiling actual plans and what it might look like, I think we'll get a chance to see that at the spring game. Another thing I learned from from my conversation with Ruiz this week is, um, you know, it's not just him. Life Wallet and Cigarette Racing that's pouring in all this money into um, into NIL anymore. Uh, there's the Canes Connection, uh, which is a which is a, I don't want to say an NIL collective, but it's a group of uh, other wealthy people. I think. Uh, you know, some some interesting names of, of South Florida individuals that have some money that are involved in this process. But uh, essentially, they've spent, I think, between 12 and 13 million dollars on NIL deals here. And uh, Nigel Pack was the highest paid basketball player that Miami got from Kansas State. He was the highest paid. Now, they, of course, you've got the Cavender twins and you've got some uh, some elite players um, that Miami assigned in football uh, here in, you know, in the last couple of months. So I think that. Uh, you know, it's a good sign. Like, I think there was one concern, Carlos, for a while. Like, man, when does Ruiz get bored of this? When does he stop spending all of his money? Uh, if Miami goes five and seven, I- I'll say this. It doesn't look like he's going away. And I-, and I think it's good that there are now more people helping pour in NIL dollars. Yeah, and I think there's there's a couple of things that people need to understand about the way Ruiz is structuring these things. Um, he's not just simply giving money away. He has return on his investment built into these NIL deals. He has a projected return based on what's going on and what he's the deals he's giving people. So he's not just blindly giving the money away, right? Um, just like with the stadium. He builds a stadium. Guess who owns the stadium? John Ruiz, right? right? Not the University of Miami. So let's not get crazy. Unless he donates it to the University of Miami completely and retains some sort of a... Uh, an ownership stake in it. But I think it's more than likely he's going to build the stadium and lease it out to University of Miami or have them, you know, basically buy it from a lease to own over time. And he's still going to be generating revenue off of that. And during the off seasons, he's the one collecting that revenue then when there's events that are not, you know, University of Miami football related, which there needs to be because if not, then that's just, that stadium is just not sustainable. Um, the other thing is I think the stadium, no matter how quickly it comes along, let's say plans were approved tomorrow, it's probably going to take at least three years to build, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe five, depending on the, how long the process is to get all the approvals. So at that point, now you're down to, let's say it's five years, you're down to just two more years left on that that Hard Rock lease. Um, and at that point, it's a little bit cheaper to get out than it would be today, right? And I think the buyout could be a little bit negotiated in a more friendly manner uh, with the Dolphins at, at that stage. Another thing about NIL, which I also mentioned on my podcast and, and the one and a half of you that, that listen to it know, um, I thought I talked about there needs to be some sort of a structure in terms of the way the NIL is handled. Maybe what they can do is is sign contracts with these players where the money isn't all given up front, where this money is earned in a certain way. I know Ruiz pays them, I think, uh, a certain amount biweekly possibly and doesn't give them a full uh, the full amount right up front. But I think maybe every semester that you're eligible and you play football, you collect a check at the end of that semester until you finish school. I think those deals should be structured in a three-year format 
So, you know, as long as you're in school, you're going to be collecting a check. So your last check comes that last uh, semester, you're eligible to play football in your third year. Uh, let's say if you're a registered sophomore or junior, at that point, you can enter the NFL. If you have one more year, and you want to come back, then you can sign a one year and I'll deal after that. But the money is released, you know, in a semester fashion, phased over time. So these people don't have so these guys don't have that money all available to them at once. Uh, and they just blow it. Another thing they could do is possibly put the money in a trust um, and have that released phased over released over time as well to create some protection for the player in case there's an injury. Um, another thing I discussed is, is, you know, it's tough with these kids getting all this money up front at such an early age because even guys that are in the NBA and NFL in their early 20s when they get this money tend to blow through it. So there needs to be some sort of protection and safety net for these kids, not because you want to protect universities, but you want to protect these individuals because they're getting some money that's essentially could be life-changing and you want them to hang on to that and use that wisely. So I think another thing that I've seen Ruiz do, Ruiz do or talk about is giving these guys financial education, giving them access to accountants and lawyers and people that understand what they're doing in terms of how this money is coming in, what the tax implications of that are, what they should do with the money to be to invest it and grow it and make sure it's a long-term investment and not something that just, you know, it's a flash in the pan. Right. Well, I, I talked to him for a while about his process of, of how much he, you know, he he determines the value of how much somebody's worth um, about the whole process of, of the checks and balances, because there are NCAA rules. You can't just hand money out. Uh, guys have to continue to show up and and do their part, do their commercials, do their uh, requirements, whatever it says yeah. on the contract. And I know with Rashad in particular, he was supposed to come and film a commercial uh, the week of the Miami Florida State game didn't show up, uh, didn't do that, and uh, th- it was a breach of contract, and and didn't, get paid. End- and didn't get paid, and and that was it. And he ended up flipping the to Florida, I think a week or two later, announcing it anyway. Um, and so that's just the way the way it is. And and so and he does it essentially to protect the players because if the yeah. NCAA does their job, uh, they should be checking ultimately whether or not these guys are actually following through with their requirements. And there's been others. He told me, I asked him, I said, have there been other players besides Rashada who didn't show up? And he says, yes. And immediately we, we send them a letter and we tell Reach them contract. breach of contract. And you have two days to essentially to respond and they stay on top of them. So I think this guy goes about it the right way, the legal yep. way, the way it's supposed to be done. Uh, he invests a lot of money into it. And now he's not alone. There are other people, other millionaires, billionaires here in South Florida, that are part of this, which is encouraging. I, I, that's the part I wanted to share more than anything with, with my listeners here. So uh, the other thing I think you could do is uh, going back to the Rashada thing, I think to protect players as well, you know, when a player signs a contract for $13 million, they don't really know if this collective has the money or not, which is what ended up happening with Rashada, right? I think mm-hmm. to be able to show good faith, much like when you buy a home, that money should be placed in escrow and the player should receive uh, confirmation of funds before the contract is executed. And then when, whenever he meets the conditions of being able to finally collect on that contract, then that money is released to him. So it should be a situation where at minimum, you know, these collectives or whoever's giving this money should be placing this money into an escrow account. So players could see that it's there and not be induced by something in, that in, at the end of the day, isn't even there, isn't even available. Really important. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. 
Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Um, all right, let's move up. We got a mailbag we're going to get to in a few minutes, but let's talk about signing day. Miami didn't add anybody. They had one guy that they hosted uh, from Chicago, three-star defensive lineman Jamel Howard. Uh, he ended up committing to Wisconsin. So Miami signs 25 players, basically all of the guys back in the uh, early signing period. Eight transfers, four that they added uh, post-early uh, signing period. One of them was Cam McCormick, the eighth-year tight end uh from from oregon that's correct eighth year um or seventh year he's gonna have an eighth year i think he can he can actually have up to an eighth year um and then who else did they add he's he's the van wilder of the university of miami football program yes they had the purdue defensive tackle uh that i don't think was part of the early signing period um who else did they add i'm trying to remember all of them on the top oh the the uh the uh roberts kid from iowa the cornerback Mm-hmm. Uh, that I couldn't write about because he wasn't signed or wasn't in classes yet. <laughs> and uh, I forget who the other one is. But they anyway, I, I have my list of my top 50 players. And I, I was going to go through that with you, Carlos, because I wanted you to, you know, see sort of, you know, we talk about Mario flipping this roster. And I, I here's my list. I'll give you the top 10. Let's start there. And you tell now me. Now let's quantify this. Let's quantify yes. this a little bit. Now, are you basing these these uh, rankings on performance from last year, performance or productivity over the course of their career, or a combination of that plus potential moving forward? I think it's a combination of that, and, and, and I think with the thought process of where they'll be in 23, how much of an impact do you think they will honestly uh, make? You know, so. All right. All right. Number one, Cameron Kitchens, All-American safety. He's number one on the, on the list. I, I can go with that, yes. Tyler Van Dyke, uh, quarterback. Uh, I know he was injured. I know his numbers weren't great, but he's still the you know still your quarterback. Uh, number three, Akeem Mesidor, defensive end. Number four, Javian Cohen, the offensive uh, line transfer from Alabama, who started 25 games. A uh, little note to share on him. Um, he allowed six pressures last season, but has never allowed a sack in college, according to Pro Football Focus. Uh, he's a left guard, 1,624 career snaps. Matthew Lee, number five on my list, the center from UCF, 6'4", 295 pounds. He's not little. Um, started 36 games for the Knights. Uh, he allowed 14 pressures 
in, uh, or four pressures in 14 starts last season. Only four pressures. Hasn't given up a sack in 17 starts. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, that, that may be the biggest addition this year on the offensive line, just because the center is that important. Yeah. Those are my top five. So Matthew Lee, JV and Cohen, Akeem Mesador, who, by the way, um, you know, 10 and a half tackles for loss, led Miami with seven sacks. I thought he was excellent. That was the best pickup in the transfer. Period. I actually would put him at two behind Cam Kitchens. Okay. That's good. Good, good. Uh, fair, fair discussion. All right. Six through 10. Leonard Taylor, um, you know, started 10 games last year. Uh, obviously going to be affected by uh, Daryl Jackson, who left. Uh, but Taylor, 10 and a half tackles for loss, three sacks in 2022. I think his upside and his potential to be a dominant force, I gave him number six. Seventh was James Williams. Uh, the safety started 11 games, 18 career starts, has 1,040 career snaps, had 58 tackles, second on the team behind Cam Kitchens and an interception. And then eight, nine, and 10, Colby Young, wide receiver, the Juco transfer, number nine, Zion Nelson, who, you know, was a three-year starter before he got hurt. And then 10th, I had Wesley Besaint, the linebacker from Miami, who started the final three games of the season. Any conflicts there? Any guys you don't think are top 10 worthy? Hmm. That's tough to say. I think Besaint at 10 is really important because he's going to be – I don't know if he's going to be uh, on that top 10 level, but he needs to be if the Hurricanes are going to be good. Um, he's a really good player. Can he make that jump as a sophomore? And it all depends also on who's he's got, who he's got playing next to him and who he's got playing in front of him at defensive tackle. So that's going to be a big question mark as to how that happens. And speaking about def- defensive tackle, I think this is a year. This is you know Leonard Taylor's third year. The, the, con- the one word I think about when I think about Leonard Taylor and James Williams is consistency. I think those that's the one thing they lack to be able to make that jump to All-American for the two of them. They need to be consistent, game in, game out, snap in, snap out. And if they do that, then we have a great chance of that defense being a hell of a lot better this year. So I'm good with your top 10. I don't have any pushback there. I'm not thinking of anyone off the top of my head that I think uh, should probably slide in there ahead of some of those guys. Well, here here's the list of, of the next uh, 10, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Devontae Brown had 11. He's a cornerback, UCF transfer, 31-game starter, uh, 1,800 snaps. So he comes in, and he's essentially DJ Ivy to me. He's got to replace mm-hmm. DJ Ivy, uh, Ty- Tyreek uh, Stevenson. Uh, number 12, Xavier Restrepo. I think when he's healthy, has a full healthy season. I think he's probably the 12th best player on your team, your, your, your lead slot receiver. 548 career snaps for him. You've had 21 catches for 240 yards and two touchdowns last year. Jafari Harvey, uh, over 1,100 snaps. He's a 14-game starter in his career, second on the team with five and a half sacks. I think he's borderline your second best pass rusher beside, behind Mesador. The guy right next to him or right behind him on my list Nigel Lee Kelly, who didn't make any starts last year, but had four sacks and 15 pressures and only 100 uh, and I think 86 or 83 snaps. He's the guy that I think makes a big jump this year yeah. and and potentially could be a starter over Jafari, uh, but a guy who I think is very much used and effective. Yeah. I think at this point, you know what Jafari Harvey is, right? He's been in the program for a long time. He's had a ton of snaps played, and this is who he is. He's, we've expected an explosive pass rusher, and we've gotten an okay one. He hasn't been great, but he hasn't been bad. He's been good. He's been okay. I think the potential with Nigel Lee Kelly is to have a huge disruptive force at, at defensive end. And if he gets more snaps and plays with Mesador at the same time, I think it could be very dangerous. All right. 15 and 16, the two defensive line uh, transfers, Branson Dean from uh, Purdue, who's a sixth-year senior. Uh, he's got close to 1,600 career snaps, started 26 games. Uh, Boilermakers were the division champions in the Big Ten. So he's only 6'2", 280. He's not a big physical 6'6", 330-pound presence, but 28 tackles, four for loss, two and a half sacks last year, 
and a guy that I think is probably going to slot in at the starter next to Leonard Taylor. But we'll see what happens through competition. If it's Jared Harrison Hunt, if he's healthy enough to do that. Uh, Thomas Gore is interesting. Uh, he's kind of like an Antonio Moultrie type. Six foot, 270, Georgia State transfer. Uh, started 15 games for the Panthers. Was an all Sun Belt selection in 2021. 38 tackles, eight for loss, five sacks. Two forced fumbles this past season. He's got 11 sacks in his career. Again, another older defensive tackle. Mario did this last year. He went out and got them. Some of those guys worked out. Some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, 17, 18, 19. Well, let me just go to 17 and 18. 18, I have Jared Harrison Hunt, who we've already talked about. Jalen Rivers, I have at 17. Um, he's the, uh, you know, I thought he was going to be one of their best offensive linemen. Unfortunately, he's dealt with back-to-back season-ending injuries in the middle of the season. Um, this year, and even when he's been in there, he hasn't been excellent. He's been uh, okay. He's, he's been average according to pro football focus. Yeah. Um, 13 pressures and two sacks last season, um, that he allowed in, in those starts. So, um, I think he's probably your swing man on the offensive line. If Francis Maui Goa and Samson Okalola are as good as advertised, the two five star yeah. recruits that they have, I've got Francis at number 20. I've got Samson at number 21. Both of them are enrolled early. Both of them are huge monsters. And if both of them are ready to go, I think they're in the starting lineup, which might force a guy like uh, Jalen Rivers Rivers to be the swing man uh, in that offense. Um, Francisco Maui Goa, I had 19th. Uh, Washington State transferred the older brother, Mm -hmm. Francis Maui Goa, 13 starts uh, in his time, including 11 last year. Uh, Mario said this on on, uh, signing day. One of the best in, in terms of pass coverage, I think he was third or second in the Pac-12 in pass coverage as far as a uh, grade that he got from, from pro football focus. So really, that's what Miami wants him for. Wesley Besant is more of your middle linebacker, your your mm-hmm. tackler, your playmaker, and those two uh, two linebacker positions. Well, he's athletic, right? Mango is athletic. He's not just – and he's a thumper, too. He could tackle. So it's not like he's a just an athletic guy that, that uh, can cover guys in space, and then he's not really a guy that can come up and bang – and support the run. He can do both. And I think that's going to help Wesley Besaint as well. I think those two together give you the athleticism and the size that you need at linebacker in Miami. You're going to look like you're a Miami defense with those two guys at linebacker, which helps a ton. I think the kid from uh, from Purdue, although he's not as big as your prototypical defensive tackle or what you call one technique, nose tackle type, uh, like Daryl Jackson Jr., I believe he was like second team all Big Ten at one point. Um, he made a lot of plays. And when you're that size and you're playing defensive tackle and you're making those kind of plays and being disruptive and being solid, uh, that means you're strong as hell. So I, I expect that kid to be if, – if they throw up his weight room numbers, I'm imagining they're going to be pretty big because that kid's got to be super strong to do that kind of stuff. Thomas Gore to me reminds me of what we call uh, – what we Cubans call un tapón, which is a, a bathtub plug, uh, six feet, 270. That boy is stout, um, and he's a guy that you could swing from end to tackle – he could probably be a pass rushing tackle on third down situations, which is going to help the Hurricanes a lot as well to create more pressure. Um, I think on the offensive line, I truly believe maybe Jalen Rivers might be the odd man out because I think you know Francis Mangoa might be the truth, and he's probably going to start uh, right from the get. I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious about Samson just because of the competition he played in Massachusetts. But if he's able to get up there and, and, and hang and adjust quite quickly and and get stuff uh, get his feet under him during the summer. Because I don't think it'll happen during the spring after another a full like complement of six months in the weight room. Then who knows? I think Jalen Rivers will be that sixth man coming off the bench. And you'll have a bench of essentially Jalen Rivers and his Cooper, uh, Lawrence Seymour, and whoever else we have out there. 
yeah, I think I think offensive line can go can quickly turn from being uh, probably a average unit to a weakness at times against good teams to now yeah. it's pretty much the strength of your offense because you don't have enough playmakers at the wide receiver position. You have a running back position where you have a bunch of unknown because of injuries and youth. Uh, I think the offensive line and the quarterback might be the strengths of this team because I'm yeah. assuming Tyler Van Dyke's going to regain his form. I, I still believe in Tyler as a quarterback. I and it's going to look like a more it's going to look like a real power five offensive line now. Cause before you had DJ Scaife at right tackle because the injury to, uh, to Zion Nelson. And now you're going to have possibly potentially Francis Mamangoa at left tackle or right tackle along with Zion Nelson, which are two huge guys. You're going to have uh, Cohen at guard. You may have Samson Okanola bumped into guard. If he's, if he earns a spot on that starting rotation and you get the, the center from UCF. So it's going to look like an offensive line that's built to play power five football, which is going to be a huge difference. Now, there are only three freshmen that I put on my top 30, guys that I think will will start and be a part of the rotation. Maybe not from day one, but certainly early on. I put Ruben Bain at number 22. I think he's built unlike most defensive linemen mm-hmm. who come to Miami. Uh, you saw Nigel Lee Kelly last year. He's 6'4", 240 come in, and he had a role off the bench. Ruben Bain is a guy that at 6'2", 250, really 260 pounds by the time the season rolls around, you can kick him inside and have him – just be a force or you can put him out on the edge and have him do the same thing. I think, you know, Ruben told me he's essentially going to come in and play the same position that Keem Mesador does, um, yeah. which is at that strong side end. And, and I think he's, he's, you're going to see him be a heavy part of rotation. Mesador is always dealing with injuries. He's always sort of banged up, always got something wrong with him at different points, shoulder, whatever it is. Um, this is a way you keep him healthy by having Ruben Bain play a lot. Uh, so I think Ruben will be in a big part of that rotation uh, you mentioned Inez Cooper earlier. I have him at 23, uh, ranked 1,150 coming out of high school uh, out of Pleasant Grove, Alabama, 6'6", 350 pounds. I think he's sort of like Navon Donaldson, you know, was yeah. in that first year where you, where you just have this massive mover that if he if he can keep the fat off of his body and, and make it a, a sleek 6'6", 330, he could really, I think, be a special player for you. We'll see what happens with Inez with his development. Um, and then Elijah Royo had 24th, obviously coming off the injury. Um, and then to Corey Couch, who's got close to, well, he's got 1,746 career snaps, started 11 games last year in the slot at cornerback. We'll see if they put him out in the boundary or field with Ivy and Tyreek Stevenson gone. So, um, you know, all in all, um, those are my top 25. You want to see the rest of the list. I got Terry Roberts in there. Uh, the Iowa transfer. He's only played 441 career snaps at Iowa. He's an unranked recruit coming out of high Back school. Back it up, Terry. Back it up, Terry. Now, he he's he played really, really good uh, in pass coverage. I think he finished ninth among 53 quarter cornerbacks in the Big Ten in pass coverage, but he only played 202 snaps. So that's a very small yeah. sample size to even just qualify. Um, but that should tell you something. Um, but I think the rest what he of- brings is, it's like you're talking about, I think you talked about in your article about him being a special teams ace, and I think that helps, and I think his his uh, uh his experience as a veteran is going to help that room. Absolutely. All right. So that's the article. Check it out at The Athletic. We're going to get to your mailbag questions here because uh, I know there were a lot of them. Um, make sure you follow us uh, on Twitter, Manny underscore Navarro. Make sure you follow Carlos at El Ledo. 1307. 1307 there. Or at, at MIA All Day Pod, which I don't tweet from much. I just throw out my shows whenever they're on. All right, here it is. This is from Rampage Kane, Ron Mexico 718, one of our loyal listeners. Uh, why is Tyreek Stevenson playing like Richard Sherman and Will Mallory blocking like George Kittle at the Senior Bowl? 
<laughs> uh, it's all about the money, man. Like Primetime said, it's all about the money. <laughs> yeah, listen, first of all, the dream for all of these guys isn't to be college football stars. The dream is to make the NFL. So they're going to get healthy. They're going to be in tremendous shape. They've had months to rest their body from the banging of football. And they've had time to heal. Some of them have had surgeries. They've The ones that didn't have been busting their ass in the weight room. Uh, so they're ready to roll. They're ready to impress NFL scouts. That's that's the bottom line. It's all about impressing them. Yeah, must be. Sorry, and the Dion song is "Must Be the Money." I'm sorry, the song is like 30 years old. I slipped with the lyrics. I know somebody on Twitter is going to talk shit, so I had to throw that out there. They're gonna, uh, um, yeah, man, bust your boss for that. Oh, they bust my balls for the the worst things. It's like uh, that's not really your name. That's not how you spell Carlos. I'm like, okay, guy. Um, so yeah, I think it's essentially that they've gotten healthy, but at the same time, I think when you're playing for livelihood, um, you tend to elevate your game a little bit more than rather than trying to beat Virginia on a Saturday afternoon in a game with 15 people there. All right. This is from Andrew V underscore 17 on Twitter. What are your biggest concerns in the off season? And the second question, what would be a successful season for you? Does this schedule look tougher than last year? All right. Let, before we get to the schedule, my biggest concerns in the offseason are the same. Like, are you going to add a playmaking number one wide receiver through the transfer portal? Is that going to happen after spring football? Are you going to be able to find that guy? Do you have a real number one cornerback on this roster? Uh, Devontae Brown played great as a sophomore at UCF, one of the highest graded players in pro football focus. Last year was more middle of the pack. Uh, so, again, you know, do those things come available? And then who leaves you? Who gets injured? Who, who can't yeah. be healthy? Uh, you know, for the start of the season, we saw how Zion Nelson's injury affected this team. Um, Which sides to leave you the transfer portal because you could still lose guys in the spring. Trevante Citizen, uh, is he ready? When will he be ready to play? He's a big time part of this offense. Whenever he gets back, um, those are all things that that uh, keep me concerned. The positive I'll say is there are 15 guys in in early enrolled for for this semester and, and guys that are either having surgery and, and getting past injuries, so they're healthy in the fall or right, you know working out, putting on weight, getting stronger, all those kind of things that you want so they can actually be contributors come this season. Yeah, I, my biggest concern, I would say, is I'll just keep it simple. Can Tyler Van Dyke or how does Tyler Van Dyke adapt to this new offensive system that's coming in and does he feel comfortable in it? All right, this is what would be a successful season for you. Um, I, again, I, I said this earlier in the podcast. I think if they win at least seven games – and the offense average is close to 30 points, and there's some excitement with it, meaning the the team is, uh, you know, showing that they can throw the football, and you've got some big play receivers that excite JoJo Trader and kids like that that want to come be a part of your program. I think that's the next step. And Mario needs another top 10 recruiting class. He needs to be top five, top seven again in terms of recruiting. Reasonable expectation of success to me would be seven and five and a bowl win. That would be a very successful season coming off last year. Ideally, what do I want? You know, from a, a little bit more of a stretch, I'd like to see them go eight and four, win a bowl game as well, uh, and compete for the conference title. But I know that's highly unlikely. Yeah, I, uh, I, I <laughs> it, it, it's not going to happen this year with Florida State and Clemson. I think both of those are clearly better than them. I would argue North Carolina with Drake May is clearly better than they are. Um, I would say. Uh, you know, Louisville has some talent on that team. That's not going to be an easy game. NC State is going to continue to be a yep. solid eight to nine win team. Uh, and Texas A&M could come in here and clean their clock. I mean, yep. I, I know people think, oh, Texas A&M was five and seven. They still have a shitload more talent than you do at Miami. 
Yep. Um, I mean, they <laughs> they got a ton of good players. They just had a bad year. They didn't have a quarterback that played well, and and that's it. Now their quarterback is a five star kid, and Connor Wigman is going to be coming back with a with a with a better, healthier offensive line. There's going to be you know hopefully for them fewer BS to deal with off the field, uh, and and you know they'll be ready to play Miami. There's no doubt. Um, David Engelson, uh, another loyal follower of ours. How many signees, not transfers? Do either of you expect to be immediate starters from day one? Wow, immediate starters. I would two two come to mind: Francis Mamagola and possibly Damari Brown. Well, Damari is not going to be. Uh, it's Devante. Uh, is the older brother? How does it work again? Yeah, Devante. Damari is not until the summertime. So I don't. I think it's going to be really hard for him to come in and start day one as a. Corner. I don't know, man. Those He's corners aren't uh, that great. All right. Well, maybe they maybe they are. I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say Francis Maui Goa and Ruben Bain. I think somehow, some way, either through injury or whatever happens, I think Ruben Bain, he's sort of like, I think, the emotional leader of this class. He's going to be that guy. He's going to be their best player, I think, in the end. Ruben Bain is. Um, I, I think I think both of those guys could be. Now, the one thing I will say, just so you know and to educate the fan base, I did this five-star series. Only 15 of the 34 five-star recruits uh, started a game as true freshmen. And I think in the last five years or six years, I got to look at the number I put in the story. I want to say there's only been 13 guys who were day one starters who started the whole season. So out of all those five stars, which is over, well over 100 when you combine from, from you know, 2017, 2018 on, there's only been 13 guys that that uh, were day one, quote unquote, day one starters. So uh, the list isn't very long. Yeah, not easy to do. It's not easy to do to come in and start every game as a true freshman. Um, all right. Um, let's see here. This is if you could pick one player. This is from. Oh, no, sorry. I skipped down a little bit. This is from Randall Carlson. Rand Carlson on Twitter. Over under odds on Miami hiring an OC by February 10th. It's a week from now. Yeah. 50-50. I, I, Maybe, uh, you know what? After the Super Bowl, I think it's more likely. I would say after the Super Bowl, yeah. I think after that weekend, they'll probably And And, and here's my candidate, if you want to throw that in there, that I discussed last year on my pod, and I think your pod too. I would say Brian Johnson, the quarterback coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, would be a great guy to go after. It'd be interesting. Um, all right, this is from Armando Izaguirre, AY2 Mondo on Twitter. You could pick one player from offense and one from defense to take a major leap. Who would you pick and why? Oh, Tyler Van Dyke on offense. After the season last year, he needs to take a major leap. But if you want to, if, if you want to not go with that kind of an obvious answer, I think on offense, maybe Jacoby George. Uh, defensively, I think either Nigel Lee Kelly or Wesley Bassaint. I'm going to say Elijah Royo because the tight end position I think is going to be pivotal in this offense, mm-hmm. and he's a big physical guy. I think if he does that, then Miami can can win some games. Um, and then I think on defense, man, they really need a number one corner. I, I, I would say you hope that that guy is to Corey Couch, who has been here five years and played a lot, but only been like a slot guy who's been average. I think if he can take that jump in year I, five, some guys do. Some guys wait till year five to really take off. Maybe he's the yeah. guy, that, that guy this year. But I still, I still think he's a slot guy. I don't think you put him out on the on the outside. All right. Uh, what happens first? This is Jesse Blanco 
uh, TV, uh, Jesse Blanco on, on Twitter. What happens first? Dolphins get to Super Bowl, Hurricanes get in the playoff. Whew. Wow. Listen, I, uh, I've been a Dolphin fan my entire life. I am turning 44 years old. That's right, my friends. 44 years old. I don't look like it. I know. I look like I'm 22. I appreciate that. Um, next month. Actually, actually, this month. Oh, shit. In a couple of days. 22 days. Anyway, I have seen one Dolphin Super Bowl in my life. The 1985 Super Bowl against the 49ers. I have not seen one since. So, just based on that and the fact that I've seen five Hurricane National Championships during my lifetime, I'm going to go with the Hurricanes. Well, I'm going to go with the Hurricanes because there's a 12-team playoff coming around the corner. Yeah. And uh, the Dolphins still need a quarterback in my mind. So, I think uh, we're, we're away. Who shots fired at Tua? It's not nothing personal. I just the guy can't stay healthy. He's got a, a track record of concussions. I, I that's what I'm worried about. Manny, I happen to know that you are very anti Hawaiian bread, Hawaiian punch, uh, and now Tua. This is getting xenophobic here, Manny. <laughs> All right, this is MJ underscore McCray on Twitter. Myrick McCray. Will there be more 2022 NFL draft picks for the Hurricanes than 2022 on field wins? Well, only five on field wins. How many players get drafted for Miami? I say two. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't see many more than that. I think Tyreek Stevenson uh, gets drafted. And I'm going to say two, but I don't even know who the second one is. Maybe Will Mallory. I think Will Mallory might be the second. Right. I think he would probably be the best bet. Yeah. yeah. All right. This is Jeffrey Cook, JPC867. Who are two to three younger guys who you expect to make the jump next year in terms of dominant play the position where we kind of already answered this besides the Royal, maybe one of the receivers, Nigel Lee Kelly, not named young or Restrepo. All right. We we already mentioned that Nigel Lee Kelly is a good name to know though. It's a good name to add to that Matthew Welch, uh, M uh, Welchman, 12, 12 with no one on the outside yet for receiver. What would you think of our, our, what our offense would look like this coming season if we stay where we are now? It depends on who the offensive coordinator is. I need to know who that guy is, what his system is, uh, and how the players adapt to that in the spring before I, I make that kind of a judgment because it really depends. Maybe you're a more tight end heavy offense in terms of the passing game or you incorporate the tight ends and backs more so you don't really need a number one receiver on the outside or you incorporate the slot guys more in your offense in terms of how you run things. Or maybe you can bring in a guy that runs a power run scheme but also an air raid offense in terms of the pass game. So it really depends. I, I, here's one thing I, I'll say. I think they're going to run the ball better because they've got better linemen. And yeah. I think they're going to have better backs. There'll be guys that are healthy. Um, there's a deeper, better talent pool at, at, at running back. So I think when you run the football better, that automatically makes you a better passing team. Like Teams are just going to have to wow. respect the run a lot more. And Listen, listen to that. Where, where have you heard that before, man? I don't – I just I, – there's this guy I know who used to play quarterback <laughs> at Miami High. Well, no, listen, let, you're, you're using the word play loosely. I didn't play very much my sophomore year. I held the clipboard. <laughs> This is from Ruben Velorio um, from Twitter. What is the worst record Miami can have next season without affecting recruiting? Uh, I would say seven and five. Yeah. Anything less than that, you're, you're, you're asking for trouble. Um, OT, the cane, just goes right to it. OC, 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 OC. Canada Canes with another OC, OC question. He says, is white smoke coming out of the hex? R.E., the OC search. Wow. A papal reference. I like that. For those of you who don't know, that's how they <laughs> announced the Pope uh, at the Vatican. You know, no white smoke yet. We still got the black. 
Yeah, I uh, I don't see any white smoke yet. I think uh, what what I what I do see is some people coming in and out of the the Pope's office. Um, <laughs> Stephen Turner, fifty six blacks again on Twitter. Is Carlos Ledo a dark horse OC candidate? Yeah, let me tell you, so dark in fact that you can't see me. You won't see me in the interview process. <laughs> and this one's from Francisco Anton uh, Anton Smith one on Twitter. Is no Chad Omier the next Jimmy Graham? Wow, that's a good question. He's solid. He's really good. I don't know if he's next Jimmy Graham. I think he's a little bit different in terms of his skill set. I think he might be a little bit more skilled than Jimmy Graham, to be quite honest. Jimmy Graham uh, knew how to play football. I don't know if Norchad's ever played it. That's probably a good question. To I'm talking about on the basketball court. I, knew, I don't see that guy making a transition to football. <laughs> that's what he was asking about. Okay, sorry, my bad. I switched I switched sports in my mind. He, I think he wants uh, somebody else there. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Wide Right. Uh, make sure you subscribe uh, to The Athletic. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the MIA All Day Pod with my buddy here, Carlos Ledo. Th Carlos, thanks for coming on and doing this with me. Any final thought before we hang up? Hey, man, not much. Just looking forward to see who this, uh, when that white smoke flies, figuring out who the new OC is, he take, taking a look at the team during the spring practices, hearing what's going on, then immediately throwing that away because spring usually doesn't matter. Uh, and just anticipating the season and continuing to do taxes here because I am the hardest working man in podcasting in South Florida on The Athletic that co-hosts the show with you because I am currently working. I've taken an hour out of my time here in my office. There are people waiting for me, sitting outside in the lobby to do their taxes. And I said, no, I got a podcast. So you got to wait. That's power right there. That's the power that few people have to, to push work aside and the importance of the Wide Right Podcast. I love it. That's I am dedication. a master, master procrastinator, if nothing else. <laughs> Brother, thanks for coming on, doing this with me. Uh, make sure you follow me on Twitter, Manny underscore Navarro. Follow Carlos. Uh, make sure you subscribe here at the YouTube page if that's where you're watching us. If not, keep listening to the Wide Ride Podcast, wherever you download the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro from The Athletic. He's Carlos Ledo. Talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.